Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be back. Thank you for letting us have the week off last week. We went to Texas and helped uh, work on a berry farm. It was really a great time together. Let's get our Bibles out. Go to John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25 this morning. Last time we saw Jesus, he was at the wedding feast of Cana doing a very unbaptist thing. He turned water into wine. Not grape juice, but wine. And we saw all the implications of that and uh, what that means. And, and so you see this beautiful uh, dichotomy of who Jesus is and what he experienced as the Messiah. Because we go from the wedding feast at Cana, he makes a quick stop in Capernaum on the north shore of Galilee. And the next thing you know, he's in Jerusalem cleansing the temple. And, and I thought about that and I thought, man, what a... What a tough thing he was called to do, to to go from enjoying life, people celebrating, to confronting people uh, over their treatment of the temple. So let's look at it. This morning starts in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was near. Now the Passover was that big feast that they celebrated commemorating uh, the exodus from Egypt. And they say that that was almost like one of these Mecca experiences if you compare it to modern day Islam. They said that more than a million people would be in Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. So, so it's a packed place filled with Jews. And the Bible says Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And by the way, there's an idiom of the Hebrew that you notice. They're coming from Galilee in the north, but they're going to Jerusalem down in the south. But it still says he went up to Jerusalem. That's because in the Jewish mind, Jerusalem was the pinnacle. So whether you were going north, south, east, or west, if you were going toward Jerusalem, you were going up to Jerusalem. If you were coming from Jerusalem, you were going down from Jerusalem. So Jesus was going to Jerusalem. And the Passover was a big deal. Million Jews are there. And he found the temp- in, in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their table. In order to worship in those days, you had to bring a sacrifice. Now, that was all fine and good if you were a rancher or if you were a farmer and you had livestock available. But in that day, as today, many people didn't have that. And even then, the priests were notorious for not allowing your, uh, your, your sacrifice to be given because it would be uh, deemed ceremonially unclean. And so the, the Jewish priests and the, and the scholars and the people that ran the temple in Jerusalem uh, decided that they would provide sacrifices for people and that when you came to Jerusalem to worship, you could just buy a sacrifice for them and that would work just fine. And so they started this side hustle where they were the providers of the sacrificial animals and they would also be ceremonially clean. The problem was they charged these outrageous rates I mean, it's like buying a meal at Disney World, you know? I mean, a $5 hamburger outside of Disney World is one thing, but the minute you go into the park, the price of that hamburger goes way up. That's called Disney magic. (laughs) It's the magic of Disney where they magically take all your money away from you and you walk out of there broke. Well, the same thing was happening in the temple. The minute you walked through the temple walls, the spiritual magic started to happen and you started to bleed money. 
And so a, a bird that would cost a dollar outside the temple was $15 inside the temple. And to make it worse, you had to buy their animals with their money. I mean, your Greek drachma or your Roman denarius wasn't any good there. You had to have a Jewish shekel. And they were the ones that set the exchange rate. Not only that, but they charged a fee for the exchanging of money, which was an incredibly lucrative side hustle. They were making bank on this from people. Uh, and, and as a result of that, and because of the inflated rates, people weren't, weren't able to worship God. They couldn't afford it. And so look what Jesus did, verse 15. And he made a scourge of cords. That word for scourge is uh, flagellium. It's, uh, that's the name of the Roman whip that they beat Jesus with when they scourged him. So there's a bit of an interesting uh, thing going on there. And he made this whip and he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He's driving the lobster. I mean, the image that I get here, it's fascinating. I mean, it's a crowded temple. It's a crowded city. It's Passover feast. And Jesus walks into the middle of that, weaves uh, something into a, a, a whip and begins chasing Jewish priests out of the temple with a whip. It's nuts. Can you imagine if he did that right here in North Monroe today? He walked into this place, braids a whip, and the next thing you know, we're, we're, we're hightailing it for a door because crazy Jesus is after everybody. That's what you would think, right? Not only that, but he drove the animals out too. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. And that word for business is emporium. And his disciples remembered that, that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And so on the busiest day of the year, Jesus walks into the midst of all of these very powerful, very important people. These people, it was, it was not as we have a democracy. It was a theocracy under the tutelage of Rome, of course, but they allowed them to run it. And the, the priests and the religious people were in charge. These were power people. These were congressmen and senators that Jesus is chasing out of the temple. And everybody's in shock. You know, that's a very different portrait that we get of Jesus from... You know, this Mr. Rogers kind of milk toast, overly kind, you know, overly compassionate, sort of accept everybody, just hope everybody loves me and let's all just get along, kind of Jesus that people want to sort of put into your mind. I had a professor one time that said, whatever image you have of Jesus, make sure he's the kind of man that can make the bad guys so mad that they wanted to kill him. Nobody wants to kill Mr. Rogers. He's somebody that you can sort of push around, kind of manipulate, not Jesus. And this cleansing of the temple is in all four of the Gospels. But John's story, you know, there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell about the cleansing of the temple. But John's description is quite different from theirs. For example, John placed this cleansing at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, while the other three had it at the very end of his ministry. Matthew, Mark, and Luke never mention a whip. John's the only one that mentions a whip. John quoted Psalm 96.9. The other three quote Isaiah 56.7 and Jeremiah 7.11. 
And the other three describe a strong reaction, a visceral reaction from the Jewish leaders as a result of what Jesus did. Uh, For example, Luke 19.47 says that they were seeking for a way to destroy him. They didn't just want to kill Jesus. They wanted to annihilate him. They wanted to get rid of any vestige of the name Jesus to eradicate his memory from the common mind. They were that furious with him. But you don't see that in John. In John, they only wanted to to ask him, you know, by what authority are you doing these things, right? Look at verse 18. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Verse 19, Jesus answered, well, here it is. You want a sign? Here it is. Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. You, You want a sign? Knock this temple down and I'll put it back together in three days. Now, of course, Jesus was talking about his body, but they must have thought he was insane. Look, verse 20, the Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body, verse 21. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. And I thought about that and I thought, you know, they said, what sign? And Jesus describes a miracle in their mind, a physical miracle. It would be impossible to rebuild the temple in three days. But when you think about it, what he actually did in the spiritual with the resurrection in three days was an even greater miracle because that was a greater impossibility. I mean, I could conceive of a way, somehow, some way, if you gathered enough people together, if you got enough uh, organizational structure, if you had all the material available, and if everybody knew their assignment and it was carefully crafted and we did it all just right, conceivably, maybe somehow, some way, you could rebuild that temple in maybe three days. I don't know. Maybe. But there's no way you could ever be resurrected. And so what Jesus did was, in fact, even more difficult than what they thought he said. And the fifth thing is, when Jesus cleansed the temple in the three Gospels, it seemed to have turned much of the crowd against him. But this time, it turned them toward him. Look at verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast... Look at this, underline this part. Many believed in his name. You see that? More people are believing in Jesus, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus on his part, and again, this is why it's early in the ministry, was not trusting himself to them for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in a man. And so clearly, this is a different description of the cleansing of the temple than what was given in the other three. Now, some people say, well, John just headed out of order. John didn't. And you got to remember what John's purpose was. When John wrote this gospel, I'm sure he already had read Matthew, Mark, and Luke because they were already available. When John wrote his gospel, he said, what I'm doing is I'm filling in the blanks. I'm going to put in those stories that were left out in the other ones. And that's what he's doing here. Nobody talked about the cleansing of the temple at the beginning of Jesus' ministry because there were actually two cleansings of the temple. There was at the beginning of his ministry and then there was at the end of his ministry, right? So let's talk about this. Let's talk about the ramifications because, you know, we've dealt with the history. I get it. Now let's talk about the implications for us today. Because it has profound ramifications for our time, right? Because here's the problem. The people in charge of the temple had turned it into a for-profit business. And i got to be honest with you. 
I'm looking at the landscape of modern church life in America, and there are a lot of guys who have learned how to turn church into for-profit business. And I'll be honest, I fear that. I fear that for us as, as a church. Because I, I don't ever want money. Money must never, ever keep somebody from Jesus. And if you make it about money, then somebody's not going to get to Jesus. That was the problem in the temple, right? And then, then I look at our church and I say, we do so many things that cost money. For a youth to go to youth camp, it costs money, right? Uh, if we have a concert here, you have to buy a ticket. It costs money. Uh, you know, sportsman's banquet, you have to buy a ticket, and then you give money, and it costs money. Dolls for missions, we sell the dolls. It costs money. You know, there's so many things. And it's like, how is that different from the temple and from buying and selling and all of that? Because I've had people complain, you know, you might have a speaker here, and they've got a, a table out where they're selling their, their stuff, and, and, you know, they're like, well, that's buying and selling in the temple. But here's the difference for me. What the Jews were doing is they were profiting off of it and in the process keeping people from Jesus. For us, there are a variety of reasons why people are doing these things. For example, concerts aren't really essential. Here's where we land. Anything essential for worship, evangelism, and discipleship must always be free, must always be free. If it's worship, evangelism, discipleship, it has to be free. You're like, what about concerts? Well, they're really not essential. They're more like Christian entertainment. So I'm like, okay, go buy a ticket for that, right? What about things like youth camp? That costs money, and we can't control the cost. But here's what we do instead. We provide fundraisers so that if the kid will go out and work the fundraiser, they can pretty much get their camp paid for. And even then, if somebody can't afford to go to youth camp, we always try to have scholarships available where we can make sure that their cost is covered because we want to make sure that they're able to go. As for the sportsman's banquet and the dolls on mission and stuff like that, you know, that's just the opposite of what they were doing. They were charging money that was causing people not to hear. What we do with the Sportsman's Banquet is we raise money so that our missionaries can go out and give the gospel away for free. And so it's the very opposite. We're doing what we can to provide opportunities for people to, to uh, come to Christ. But it costs you nothing to come and worship. Nobody had to have a ticket to come in here, right? Cost you nothing. It costs you nothing to be engaged in small group discipleship. That's free. Costs you nothing to be involved in evangelism and sharing your faith with your friends and, and being trained for that. All of that is free because the gospel always has to be free. Now, having said that, the presenting problem here is the way they handled money, but that's not the core problem. That's the hands problem. That's what they were doing. But the bigger problem was going on in their heart and what was happening in their heart, because this is really an issue of integrity, right? And the word integrity means to integrate your beliefs and values with your actions. I have integrity when I have aligned what I believe about Jesus with how I then live my life, authentically, transparently, that's integrity, right? In fact, the Hebrew word for that uh, had to do with maturity and completeness, that you become complete when you become, when you're, when you're, what do they say? You walk the talk. 
And the problem here was these spiritual leaders had zero integrity and it produced two very terrible consequences. The first was unnecessary barriers to worship. Because they had let their greed take over, they were creating an environment where the average guy couldn't worship because he couldn't afford it. And that becomes a barrier between God and that person. And the second, of course, is their lives became hypocritical and everyone knew it. So let's talk about that because these tendencies are in us. First, integrity keeps me from building barriers. He said repeatedly in the other Gospels, the temple was to be a house of prayer. That is, the temple is a place where we commune with God, but they had turned it into this Turkish bazaar and the purpose was lost and they were undermining the very thing that they had been assigned to do. And that's so tragic for me. Their assignment was you help people worship. You're a priest. You help people find God. But because their lives weren't integrated and because money became more important to them than what their purpose was, they actually created a barrier for people who couldn't get to God. And there's a warning here for us. The principle is simple, no barriers. We must never allow our methods or practice to create barriers that make it harder for people to find Jesus. You're like, who would do that? I mean, what church would do that? What what organization would create a barrier to make it harder for people to experience what you were designed and given the calling to do? Well, it happens all the time. It happened here. Here's how it works, how to build a barrier. First of all, you say something reasonable. People aren't going to follow something that's unreasonable, so you say something reasonable. Well, and, and in their case, I can just hear them say this. Hey, look, everybody's having a hard time getting a sacrifice. Let's just provide the sacrifices. Let's, let's, uh, let's fence up some herds of animals. Let's get some birds in cages. Let's have them some sacrifices available. That's a reasonable proposition. And so the second step is you adopt it as practice. And so you begin to do it. And so they get that and they, that becomes part of their practice. And then it becomes policy. And, and the policy started to work like this. You can now, we, we started this so that we could supplement those who didn't have sacrifices. But now, if you don't buy our sacrifices, you can't sacrifice. And all the while, at first it's like, ooh, we probably need to, rate, to charge them a little bit so that we can cover some of our costs. And then the, the price begins to drift up until ultimately it became what Jesus ran into here. You turn practice into policy. And then you perpetuate the policy without considering the consequences. And I'm sure that's what happened there. That happens all the time. It happens in churches. And we will create practices that become barriers for people to come to Jesus. I, I, years ago, I read this story. This guy and his family were traveling through the South, and it was lunchtime, and they were hungry, and they wanted something to eat. So this is back before, you know, Google and all that stuff. So they... Uh, they got out the Yellow Pages, and they were looking through restaurant section of the Yellow Pages, and he comes across this one named Church of God Grill. The Church of God Grill. He said, man, i got to call that place. So he calls them. They're like, yeah, come on. we got plenty of room. You Come on. We've, and, you know, high star rating, everything like that. And he said, I, you just got to tell me about your name. I mean, Church of God Grill. How did that happen? He said, well, it worked like this. We started out, we were this little church, the Church of God, probably the Church of God number two or number three, who knows. And we're the church of God. 
And then we're starting to run low on money and, and we're struggling to make ends meet. And so somebody said, well, you know, I know somebody's a good cook. Let's start a grill and, and so that let's sell some of our food and we'll offset the cost. So they started doing that. He said, one thing led to another. The church kept declining. The grill kept getting bigger. So we just dropped the church altogether. And now we, we kept the name. We're the Church of God Grill. And I'm like, how does a church turn into a grill? That's exactly how it works. And we've got churches all over the place. Our associational uh, director of missions, coordinator of missions, told me the other day, I think it's 19 churches in our area that run under 40, under 40 people. He said in just a short time, those churches will be gone. And I don't know what happened to those churches. You know, there's a variety of things happen. But one of the things that happens in churches is we create barriers that make it harder for people to find Jesus. And we do that. When we drift from our mission and purpose, we adopt policies that can actually work against the very thing we set out to accomplish. Hey, let, me, let me give you an example, okay? And you guys will probably appreciate this. Uh, someone said, and it was reasonable, when you attend church, you should wear your best. Wear your best to go to church, right? So everybody started to wear their best. They started dressing up. And, you know, we come to church in our what? What clothes do we wear? Our Sunday best. You got to have your Sunday best. And so a reasonable statement turned into a practice. That practice turned into policy. We expect people to wear their Sunday best. So if you should have your suit on with your tie tie, you should have your dress on and everything just right. And then you can come to church. And that policy then begins to work against you because there are unintended consequences. You know what one of them is? When someone comes who doesn't necessarily have the Sunday best or maybe didn't get the memo on the dress code, they come in, they look around, and they feel what? Isolated and ostracized, right? Now that's the person we're trying to reach for Jesus, but because we have adopted a, a policy of a dress code, all of a sudden the person we're trying to reach can't get to Jesus because we've created a barrier that he can't get over. And we hard bake it into our core values and we become critical of the underdress in church. First, no one ever considered the validity of the idea. Is the idea of dressing up for church anywhere in the Bible? Point to a verse. Did Jesus do that? Is there any time where, where Jesus said, well, I'm going to the, I'm going to the synagogue, y'all, where's my best robe? I can't wear sandals today. I need to put on something better, you know. In fact, the opposite seems to be the case. James 2.2 says this. He says, if, if, if a man comes into your, into your church and he's wearing fine clothes and another man comes in and he's wearing dirty clothes and you treat the guy with the fine clothes better than you treat the guy with the dirty clothes, you have sinned and shown favoritism. Now, a couple of things on that. First of all, it's okay to wear fine clothes if you want to. But the second thing is, and get this, if you got dirty clothes, you're welcome too. That means there were people in their churches with dirty clothes. And it didn't matter because that's the guy that they want to reach, right? And so we have these unintended consequences. You know what the first thing everybody asks when they walk into a place like this is? not what the preaching's like. It's not what the music's like. You know what the first thing they ask is? Who in here is like me? 
And if they look up on the stage and they see a guy in a $2,000 suit, you know, with his everything perfect, then they're going to look at him and go, man, I don't, I'm fresh out of $2,000 suits. I don't, I don't know if I can go there, you know. And everybody else is dressed in the same clothing. And all of a sudden, he, he feels isolated, right? And there's a whole lot of people, turns out, who can't afford expensive suits and, they, and dresses, and they feel extremely uncomfortable dressed in, in, in jeans and T-shirt in a, in a room that looks like it's a formal gala, you know, red carpet affair. And so without even thinking about it, we've created barriers. We make barriers like that. And churches have done that. And now those churches are going out of business because the people that they were in business to reach can't be reached because of something that seemed reasonable at the start. Here's another one. We, buildings, how you treat your building, right? There's that great scene in the Jesus Revolution. You guys got to go see that movie or just rent it or what? It's on Amazon now. Rent it. And there's this great scene because it's Chuck Smith in California, true story, Costa Mesa. Um, he's, he's got a bunch of hippies coming to his church. And the old guard is like, they're barefooted and their feet are dirty and they're messing up our carpet. <laughs> what a great problem. You have so many new people that they're messing up your carpet. Very next scene, it cuts to Chuck Smith. You know what he's doing? As these hippies are coming into church, he's washing their feet. Man, that was a powerful scene for me in the church, in that movie. And it reminds us, we can't let our buildings... I, I was talking to a guy last week, I, I, and, and he's pastor of this, this church that was downtown, First Baptist, been there before Jesus almost, you know, and they've got the plaque and architectural this and historical that and all of that stuff. And they were declining. He said, for the last eight years, we were in decline. They'd gotten down to 250 people. And he said, so we took the extraordinary step of moving out and they moved out where the people were closer to the to where they could reach people. And man, the church is booming. It was obvious that there's a freshness there. The church is doing so well. And the pastor told me this. He said, you know, that old church had become an idol. You know what a building is? It's a tool. That's all it is. It's a tool. This building is not the church. You're the church. The word for church in the New Testament was ecclesia, which means the assembled ones, the congregation. You're the church. This is just a tool that allows us to worship conveniently and in comfort, but it also allows us to reach into the community by opening our doors to a variety of other things. But it's never the, you know, here's the thing. Europe is covered in the most beautiful, empty church buildings in the world. They're beautiful, man. They're, that's what people go to Europe to see is old dead churches. But they're empty. We can make... Barriers out of buildings. We can make barriers out of worship style. We can make barriers out of denominational labels. I mean, labels used to define us and now they tend to divide us. And so here's the principle. No barriers. The cross of Christ has to be the only barrier a person faces when he comes to the Lord. You see, dying to yourself, taking up your cross and following Jesus is hard enough. We shouldn't do anything to make it one bit harder. In fact, we should do everything we can that that becomes the only thing they have to deal with. Because I'm convinced that once you deal with Jesus, he'll take care of the rest. 
I love what Ruth Graham she said. She said, it's my job to love Billy. It's God's job to make him good. And once the Holy Spirit gets in him, then the transformation is going to occur. So I can't demand that you look a certain way, act a certain way, even believe a certain way until you deal with the cross. And that's hard enough, right? These men were responsible for helping people get to God, and they had created barriers that were keeping them from it. And I think the second thing is even more obvious, and I'll dance through this quickly, but integrity keeps me from being a fake. Integrity keeps me from building barriers, and integrity, even more important, keeps me from being a fake. These are spiritual men who are supposed to be pursuing a spiritual purpose, but they are leveraging their position for financial gain. They were supposed to shepherd the sheep, but they were fleecing the flock. And I know a lot of pastors doing that. Sad. You know, Jesus reserved his harshest criticism for those who profess a belief in God, but live as if he didn't exist. I mean, he slaughtered the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders on this. He called them whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you look great. Inside, you're full of dead stuff. He called them hypocrites. Read Matthew 23 sometimes. It's, woe to you hypocrites. Woe to you hypocrites. Woe to you hypocrites. And a hypocrite, of course, is a play actor. It comes from the Greek stage. It's someone who pretends to be something that they're not. They're fakes. And I think the message from the temple cleansing is simply this. God hates fakes. And I thought about that. Why does he hate fakes so much? Why is he so hard on fakes? And I think it's because fakes are self-consumed. They only care about themselves. And so their only concern is how they're being perceived and what they can get out of you. A fake only cares about what he can get from you, right? And so in the, at the end result, fakes tend to hurt people. And God loves people. Do you know God loved you so much he gave his only begotten son? That's how much he loves us. I mean, we are the image of his creation. There's nothing he loves more than people. And when somebody's hurting people, you're on the wrong side of the Lord. But that's what fakes do. They hurt people. You ever been hurt by a fake? Last year at Christmas, my wife wanted to buy uh, our daughter-in-law some hokas. Y'all know what hokas are? They're a shoe with a big cushy sole. And uh, the problem was apparently hokas are super popular, so you couldn't get them. So Amy can't find them at any store, so she finally decides, she Google searches hokas. Where can I buy hokas? And a list of websites come up. And she clicks on the first one that comes up, and she couldn't believe the prices. They were way cheaper on this website than what she had been used to. And so she's like, wow, there's a deal. I might buy two pair. And so she's real excited. So she looks down, finds one she likes, clicks it, orders it, PayPal, the whole bit. And then we wait for it to come. A week goes by, two weeks go by, no hocus at the house. Finally, Amy said, I don't know what's going on. Can you check that email? Did they send you an email? And so I look, and when I find it, it's in Chinese. So the first thing is like, we're in trouble. I don't think you're going to get any hokas, baby. And we looked at it real carefully, and the website she had gone to wasn't Hoka, H-O-K-A. It was Hola, H-O-L-A. I said, baby, you bought some holas, not some hokas. And that hola means there's a hola in your bank account because there ain't no hokas coming. There ain't no hope of no hokas. And PayPal ain't going to help you with that because you used a debit card and it's gone. 
And you know, there's an old saying, you pay for your education. And that's what we did. We paid for our education again. But you know what? It just makes you hate fakes, doesn't it? And I think it's true of marketing and material things. It's even more true of spiritual things because fakes hurt people. I think that's why God hates fakes. Fake believers also hurt the name of Jesus. And I think this is the other reason. You know, we used to, I was at this church and we had this big Christmas thing with big pageant and Dickens Christmas. Everybody dress up Dickens. We made the whole inside look like an old English village and it was a big production. And they'd have a big Christmas parade every year and we'd go out with our tickets and we'd free tickets, hand people tickets. Hey, come to our deal. My youth minister told me the story. He said he walked up to this couple. They're sitting in a pickup truck watching the parade. And he says, hey, we're doing a Christmas program. We'd love to have y'all come. And here's two free tickets. And the guy goes, I think we'll go. And he takes it and his wife gives him that look like. And he's like, did I forget something? Did I say something wrong? And she said, you know who goes to that church. And he stops for a minute and he turns to my youth minister and he hands him back the tickets and said, never mind, we'll not be coming. Now, I don't know the backstory on, the, on that. You know, and some people... They're just bitter people and they're always looking for an excuse to be mad and they don't get over anything. You know, there are people like that, but it's a good reminder for me. It's a very good reminder for me that how we live our life affects the way people perceive Jesus. And if I'm a fake, then I'm going to present a fake impression of who Jesus is and they're not going to want anything to do with it. Now, to be clear, we're not talking about people who struggle with certain sins. We're all going to do that. We're not talking about being perfect. And by all means, don't even try to, in fact, I think that's what we are talking about. Don't try to pretend you are perfect. You don't have to be perfect. You know what I've discovered? Here's what I've discovered. People would rather you be who you are than try to be fake being something you aren't. People would rather you be who you are than try to fake being something you aren't. Here's what they're looking for. They're looking for something real. They're looking for a, a person who says, you know what? My life's a mess, but Jesus Christ can change your life just like he did mine. I'm not perfect. I still struggle, but I'm forgiven. I love that old bumper sticker. Christians aren't perfect. They're just forgiven. And that God is changing me day by day. I'm not the guy I want to be, but thank God I'm not the guy I used to be. And I'm transparent and I'm authentic. And you know what I've discovered? When you're transparent and authentic and honest and the person really knows you genuinely care about them and you love them, they will forgive a lot of things. I say this to parents all the time. Mom and dad, you're not going to be perfect. You're going to make mistakes. And don't pretend to be perfect. But here's the thing. They won't forgive you for being a fake. But they'll forgive you for making a mistake. If you're transparent, authentic, and they know you love, you love them because love covers a multitude of sins. And when we live that kind of life, these people who are hurting and struggling, who are trying to find a different life and trying to find a better way, who know that there's emptiness in their life, they're going to look at you and say, there's something real to them. And that's what I really want. And I think that's why God hates fakes. Because not only do they hurt people, they hurt what he's trying to do in the lives of people. And so sweet 
Jesus. Loving, kind, healing, compassionate, long-suffering, gentle Jesus walked into the temple on the busiest day of the year with the most powerful people in the world, and he braided a whip, and he started to move through that place like a Cat 5 hurricane and totally swept away all the greed and graft. And he said in the essence, my people, which is us, it's not those Pharisees, it's us, must live with integrity. Be who you say you are. No more barriers. No more fakes. Are you with me? I'm going to ask you to make two commitments. Will you help us to seek ways to bring down barriers? Everything we do has to be evaluated in light of our purpose. God has said to us, great commission, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you to the end of the earth, right? That's our purpose. And he says, here's how you do it. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And anything we do that runs contrary to that is a barrier. The only barrier should be the cross. Will you help me with that? To bring down barriers? And will you seek to be authentic in your walk? I've got a feeling some of you kind of know in the back of your heart that you've been faking it. And God wants you to be authentic. Would you say to God this morning, Father, I purpose to be authentic before you. I'm going to be real. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Jesus and his passion for his temple and his passion for his church. Thank you that he showed us his zeal, the zeal for his house consumes him. We're his house. We are the temple of God. That same passion consumes him now. Because, Father, we know your heart that you desire integrity in us to make us complete and whole. And so, Father, we make this commitment to you today that we will examine and bring down the barriers. Anything we do that keeps people from Jesus, Father, help us to see it and stop doing it. And Father, we purpose before you today that we're going to live authentic lives. We're not going to be perfect, but we're going to be forgiven and filled with the Spirit, transparent, authentic, and loving. And that through us, Father, you would show the world who you really are. And we thank you for the privilege of letting us be a part of that. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make Him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.